This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with my friend, Ambassador Rick Barton. Ambassador Barton has just written a really interesting book called PeaceWorks, America's Unifying Role in a Turbulent World. Ambassador Barton, thanks for being with us. Hey, my pleasure, Dan. What a pleasure. It's so nice to see you. Thank you. Same here. I, I don't see enough of you, and so I'm glad we have an excuse to have this discussion. <laughs> so it's good. It's good. All right, so where did you grow up, and who are you? And Now, I know a little bit about you. You were born in Argentina. I was. I'm a porteño. You're a porteño de, de, de alma, de, de <laughs> nacido. How did that happen? Well, my father was in the Foreign Service, and after he got out of World War II, where he, he was in the Marines and served in Iwo Jima, he decided he wanted to pursue more peaceful ways and to try to really promote global understanding. And so he, he entered the Foreign Service and was essentially most of his career a cultural affairs officer, sort of the soft, so-called yeah. soft side, but oftentimes the most effective side of American messaging. And Argentina was his second post. So he was in Uruguay when my middle brother was born. Then I was born in Argentina. Then we went to Spain. And then he got out for a few years. And so, but it's always been a, uh, this has been a lifelong interest of mine is sort of bringing people closer together. And it really came from my parents. And I try to acknowledge them in the book. I noticed mm -hmm. that in the book you talked about my grandfather was in the Second World War and had a huge impression on me. And I think in some ways my work. You in the book talk about your dad's military service yeah. and that he was very affected by that. He saw intense fighting. Yeah, he did. He, he, he knew that he was lucky to survive because he did, was on Iwo Jima one hour after it started. Uh, did he talk about it? You know, not a whole heck of a lot. If you asked him, he would be responsive, but he did not initiate it. At an event here at CSIS, the annual birthday celebration of the Marines, he would come as the oldest Marine. Oh, wow. And I never saw him more comfortable with a group of people than at that particular public event. He was a bit introverted, although he had a friendly way to sort yeah. of overcome his shyness. But in that group, he just looked right at home. And it, it surprised me because I had not... you not seen that before. I didn't know it, yeah. That's so interesting. Well, I think it was clear in the book that your father's service, both his military service and his foreign service, had an impact on you and your family. Mm, for sure. You were born in Argentina, and you yeah. spent some of your life in Spain? Yeah, so we were always representatives of the United States in a way because there were not a lot of Americans out in those no, in the 50s and time, 60s, no. no. And we went to local schools, so that made us even more visible because we'd be the only Americans in a Spanish school. And you'd have a lot of appreciation for other cultures and other perspectives being the only gringo in different places. Well, you know, you'd like to think so, but obviously there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn. <laughs> and the, a big message of the book is that humility goes a long way and you can always renew that account. <laughs> that's for sure so when did you stop kind of being overseas when you were like in middle school well uh yeah in uh, third grade i we came back and lived outside in new york but then my dad went back into the foreign service and i was in 10th grade oh. or just before i went to 10th grade and so then we went to the dominican republic bolivia mexico was he with usia he was yeah to get back in the foreign service he he started he had to go back to AID for 2 years in the Dominican Republic there was a little revolution yeah. there and he was evacuated and, and never went back and then he got back to USIA which was really his affection he loved he loved selling american culture he he loved the discussing American philosophers. So there, a lot of people don't think that America has any philosophers that were too young to have that practice. And he would love to sell pragmatism as as one of the great philosophies that America had contributed to the world. You know, that kind Pretty of true. Yeah, it Pretty is. True. Yeah. Okay, so you've had a really interesting career. You are an alumni of CSIS. 
you consider yourself a Mainer? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, we Maine was always our home, and that was our one home in the United States. And so when I left college, I settled there, worked for a congressman who ran for the Senate and was elected in 1972. And so, so that, I, who I, was that I, politician? I, Bill Hathaway, yeah. who was a, a great Democratic congressman and senator, and he defeated Margaret Chase Smith <gasps> in a wonderful campaign where we were we were told not to ever say anything. Negative about her. Call I'm her. Very sen- upset. I really like Margaret yeah. Chase Smith. She was so, an icon, but she was, she was probably pretty old at that time. Well, I mean, for that time, she was old. Today, she'd be on the younger side of Senate members. <laughs> so you ran the Democratic Party of Maine at one point. I did. I think that's yeah. a cool thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a job that I never wanted, but I actually, I think I did fairly well because I knew what needed to happen, and I wasn't trying to be a lobbyist or something else at the same time. And it's all about promoting your candidates and having a view of what the party's trying to accomplish. And we were able to get out of debt, which is a constant, it's a constant, constant problem for the Democratic Party structures. So. And, or anybody, any small D Democratic. Yeah, yeah, right. right? Small right. D Democratic, and that. Andrew Natsios, who ran the Republican Party of Massachusetts, was said to me, you know, there's giving money and raising money is like a never-ending thing. It's like, it's not like you're never finished, and so it's miserable and thankless. When I get on a plane to go somewhere longer flights in the United States, I still remember that when I was the party chair, I would take usually as many thank you cards as I could, and oftentimes for the entire flight, I'd be writing personal notes to people who'd given anything for a dollar up, because if you didn't express gratitude they wouldn't be they wouldn't be there the second time you know i can relate to that and you know both you and i like politics and i just people remember if you don't say thank you you were in politics how did you end up in washington so i worked some in the 1992 presidential campaign of bill clinton which kind of in maine in maine and it kind of imploded just before the maine primaries caucuses and so he it's a primary or caucus well in those days it was a caucus now it's now it's a combination actually but the primary is more important but i had always thought that i would like to get back into this kind of work because that had really been my family's experience and what i had known from being a kid but when i came down to washington i had so bill clinton won and you came to washington yeah he won and i came down about march thinking well things are just getting going but it turned out in washington in particular the democratic party there are lines of five or ten people for every job and they already knew which job they wanted i didn't know which job i wanted i wasn't in the line you didn't know what the plum book was i kind of knew the plum book but that was it you know you didn't realize that there were people who'd made an entire people do a living make a living out of this stuff about (laughs) scheming for their next political game so i didn't have any of that and so i I had wonderful meetings because george mitchell was a a friend and i'd been party chair at his at his request but what happened was that i went back to maine thinking whoa was i ever young and (laughs) naive naive you had fallen off the turnip truck. Yeah, so I just happened to come back for a, a Christmas party. In, Here? Yeah, in Washington. We were invited to the White House, and my wife and I said, look, we never know when there's going to be another Democratic president. If we've been invited, we better go. We're going to be there when it starts, and they're going to have to kick us out. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much just about the way it, it all worked. ate up all the canapes. <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> the party was supposed to end at 8. 
12.30 or something, at about 9.20, somebody came along. Thank you so much for coming. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd was down to a mild. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so anyway, we did that. But in the course of that, Brian Atwood, who was then the administrator of AID, had had a great idea, which shows up in the book, yeah. and that's really my first big experience in the peace-building field, was that he told the Senate at his confirmation hearing that he would be starting a new office that would deal with countries in transition. And his first thought was the former Soviet Union. But by the time I got down here and he hired me to run this new office, he had the regular bureaucracy had already seized the former Soviet Union because it was very attractive. It was safe and it had a lot of money. So that didn't take 10 minutes for the regular AID bureaucracy to say, well, we'll take it. What was left was unknown, but I quickly seized on what I thought were the compelling front page places. Most of them were in conflict. So we got we got involved with Bosnia, Haiti, Angola, Rwanda in the first year. And it turned out that picking those places where there was very little competition, but also really difficult to do. So there are chapters in the book that really are about each of those places because it was, a, in a way, a golden era for peace building because there were so many small conflicts all over the place, and we were able to experiment and do pilots and test ideas and really come up with a notion that nothing is a precedent unless it works. It's an experiment if it, if it fails, and if it works, then it could be a precedent. That notion got us into a lot of these places. One of the things you're known for is you're one of the parents of, I'm not going to say the only parent of, but you're one of the parents of Office of Transition Assistance, OTI, which yeah. is this sort of the Marine Corps of AID, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Uh, that's nice. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean that. I think I know you were very generous in the book. You mentioned a number of people. Why don't you just mention some of the names of some of the folks who helped sure, well, put it together? Sure. I mean, they ended up being colleagues here at CSIS yeah. as well. So Steve Morrison was really the very first partner because yeah. he was a co-founder. And then Johanna Mendelson yeah. was another co-founder. And then beyond that, there were people like Mike Medesian, who was a wonderful spirit, and he was really one of our bosses, but he became almost an extension of the office and a founder. And Doug Stafford, who was also the boss for that entire bureau at AID. And then Brian Atwood deserves a ton of credit. He gave a lot of political cover, and he believed in it. He found a way to to mention numerous talks, and it's amazing how the bureaucracy reacts. I mean, I was still too busy and naive, green as well, and I would think a sentence on page seven was so what but the entire bureaucracy would, would notice it right on it say, and that's his baby and he must be protecting it that avoided lots of piranha like moments but rick i think one of the things is that the proof is in the staying power so what you all created was something that was needed and useful mm-hmm. because it remains yeah it and remains, and it's large, it's robust, it's healthy. Started as a $20 million office with four people. Now it's about $220 million plus, and there are years that it's more than that because so many other parts of the U.S. government actually invest their money through it. I can think of dozens of people I've talked to over the years who get up in the morning and hate on AID and hate on foreign aid, <laughs> and they say, oh, but that OTI thing, <laughs> I like that OTI thing, that's okay. Yeah. And you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. We right away saw that there were some market opportunities that needed to be addressed. It took a good idea two years to go to fruition in the AID model of those days. And it took the World Bank three or four years. Yeah. So AID was actually faster. So we thought, okay, speed is important. Another thing that aid was reluctant to do was sort of political development assistance. That's really what Brian Atwood wanted. Yeah, he so came from NDI. Political. He came from right. National Democratic Institute. Right. So he understood that... 
a lot of conflict at the root has a political, small p political component to it. You're a former chair of the Democratic Party in Maine. You had an understanding of grassroots politics and that people have concerns, people have gripes, people have problems that need to be solved. And sometimes they, generally we want people to do it through the democratic process and through some kind of a normal process. And some people pick up a stick and bang somebody over the head, you know, to think they're going to solve the problem. Well, you know, when I was Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees at UNHCR, our High Commissioner, Sadako Agata, used to say... Who's an icon. There's no humanitarian problem on earth that can be solved by the humanitarians. You have to address the politics of it, because that's where they had... I want to come back to her, and I want to come back to that. Gosh, that is no truer words. I actually love the politics of these places. It's very complicated. They are incredibly complicated, but the traditional development community tries to finesse them by saying... And if we, if we grow enough corn, maybe, maybe all the corn farmers will make bring peace or whatever. And I believe that you've really got to have that you got to deal with the, the actual root of the issue. Yeah, and another advantage that we had, and this goes to this day, and, and it was actually true when I was at the Conflict and Stabilization Operations Bureau at, at the State Department as well. Most people in a room in the U.S. government come with an existing portfolio or product. So they're there because it's a geographic imperative. They work on Africa, they work on Eastern Europe, whatever it happens to be, or they have a product, which is we do AIDS, we do whatever. So to have an office like OTI or like CSO at the State Department, where you can actually go into a room and you're not there because you have to be there, but because you believe there's an opportunity and you can then customize the product or the response to the stated need of the people is a wonderful license, and it's a necessary license. And that kind of liquidity and fluidity and flexibility are things that, again, the book really talks up in a serious way and that our, our government needs to do more of it. It doesn't help when the biggest problem in Kenya is election-related violence, and everybody in Kenya is paralyzed by it, and yet the United States is already spending $800 million in the place, on and, it's all, and it's all there to fight AIDS. Fighting all, you and I are both on, and on the record saying we're all for fighting AIDS. Right, right. But if you're going to lose several thousand people in the interim to election-related violence, then you want to be able to do something about that, too. One of your early investments was in a a media project Mm -hmm. in the Balkans? Yeah. Talk about that. Well, so often you don't have enough money to deal with a big problem, and you also want to get on it fairly quickly. And I happen to think— This was at OTI. Yeah, at OTI. But also, basically, throughout my career, I've really felt, and and this is directly related to politics, that media makes an impression on people and that you can really get into people's heads very quickly and almost on a universal basis if you can become a dominant force in the media. So oftentimes what happens to people in the development community or even the diplomats is they think, well, we will build a new broadcasting network. We're going to build a new CBS. Exactly. And I But my feeling in Bosnia was, and that was actually, there was an international plan to do that, but to get the international donors together to figure out where they're going to put the transmission towers. Take five years. So it turned out that there were radio stations all over Bosnia, and there were also a few TV stations. So the question is, if you went into them, would they sell you advertising? And it turned out that I walked into one in Sarajevo one day. I never would have found it except for I took a taxi, which was really unusual in Sarajevo at that time in, in 1994. Dropped me off, and I sat down with a guy. I said, why, do, why does everybody, the, the guy was running the station, general manager, and there was only one other employee there, and they were running German football on the air because they didn't have any programming. So I said, why do people call you a the, fund, the fundamentalist TV station? And he was outraged. He said, 
That Jackie Shimansky of CNN, she's passed the word. But what was happening is that there was a local imam who would buy the 7 to 8, 8 o'clock slot, and that's when the internationals would be at the Holiday Inn, and they'd be turning on their TV, and there they would be the imam. Look at that. Yeah, they say, it must, this must be a religious station. Sort of the way— The Al Jazeera or Well, whatever. the way the, the local CBS outlet in Washington is from 8 to 9 in the morning. It's, it's some preacher who's bought the hour. And right, that's true. So I said, okay, that doesn't concern me. Would you be willing to sell advertising on your station? Well, it took him a nanosecond to open a drawer, pull out a rate sheet. And the rate sheet was basically— See, for you, my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was something like $900 for 60 slots. And he didn't care if they were 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and a minute and a half, because anybody, any revenue during the war was, was great. So we decided— let's... Small, unmarked bills, though. <laughs> <laughs> everything everything was done in Deutschmarks. Right, you know, Deutschmarks and small so Mark Bill. We started an advertising campaign that was Make Peace Your Future. It was annoying. It was so, so old school. It was like a dentist drill. <laughs> and every everybody in Bosnia was doing one thing, watching television all day because there was no work. Else to do. They, you're either fighting, which is almost nobody, or you're watching And TV. there was no internet. Within a few weeks, people were begging us to take the commercials off the air. They were driving them so crazy, which was, to me, the greatest measure of success because the message was just being drilled right into them. One of the things I used to say that if, if I had a little bit more money, I would have had the movie Babe and made everybody in Bosnia go see it, you know, having the wolves get along with the sheep. I would have done drive-in movies <laughs> <laughs> because they obviously, they obviously didn't get the message. <laughs> So you were at OTI for five years? Yes. One of your legacies is it remains, it's flourishing, mm -hmm. it's an established practice not only at AID, but sort of the development humanitarian nexus, which is sort of mm -hmm. what OTI straddles. Yeah. The darts, is that an OTI thing or is that an OFTA? No, that's an OFTA thing. And we, we looked at OFTA was flying high when OTI was started and was really a great success. And I ended up hiring people from OFTA, hiring people that had worked through OFTA in Bosnia for the IRC, the International Rescue Committee in, out of New York. And so we hired people, we followed their print. And, and I liked the DART team model, which was get on something really fast. We tried to create a standard that we could get it, take an idea to the field and have something really starting to cook in six weeks. And we also said that we would only do it for two years. Both of those things have obviously been have moved around, but fudged but, but they were good targets Metrics. because they, they created urgency. They created a, a feeling that these are volatile places, and if you sit back and watch them too much, you'll be in your third presidency, your 14th Congress, whatever it happens to be. How did you end up at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugee? Well, so UNHCR. So the, yeah, so the the United States had a traditionally had the deputy slot there because we were the biggest donor. But we had taken the lead position at UNDP, and so had given up two deputy slots at UNRWA in the Palestinian part of the UN and at UNHCR. But we did not put for it. We supported a British candidate for the head of UNDP. Mark Nolik Brown. And that then meant that we were back. It's sort of like a, this is like a baseball trade. Yeah, it's baseball we, trade. We, we were then back into, okay, now we had two deputy slots. And the U.S. wasn't coming up with candidates that Sadako got the like. So I was in a second or third list that was presented to her because she really wanted to make her own choice. And she had enough standing that the U.S., Julia Taft, and other key intermediaries agreed with her that she could recommend the person she wanted. And so I was, Doug Stafford had been one of her deputies. I was put forward, and she liked this work on what she called the gap between the humanitarians and the development community. And she felt that humanitarians kept getting stuck 
because there was nobody there to take over that in that interim period. And that's what she had seen me do that at OTI, and she hoped that I could help expand that at, at so, UNHCR. So who's Sadako Ogata? She's a great— She's still alive, right? She is still alive. She's probably in, in her, her mid, 90s. mid-80s. Yeah. Oh, I saw her at JICA's building. She still uh-huh. keeps an office at JICA, the Japanese uh-huh. aid agency, sometime in the last 24 months. Oh, really? Yeah. So oh, yeah. She, so she ran. She ended up being the head of JICA. She's really an icon. She's a global icon. She's but, a global icon. But she had been mostly kind of a human rights lawyer and a, and a professor and had been on several official Japanese delegations and assigned to things. And she was selected as the High Commissioner for Refugees in the early 1990s. And that was the heyday because UNHCR really was the lead agency for the Kurds leaving Iraq for or being protected in Iraq for, in Bosnia and Rwanda. It, it turned out that the UN did not have a lot of frontline agencies that could move quickly, and UNHCR became that, or was that, and became even more that. She was the leader during that period. So you were her deputy, mm-hmm. and she. T- and what does UNHCR do, and what did you do there? Well, you basically protect refugees. You protect them where they are. You protect them where they move in the world. And so protection is one element. It's the biggest element. That's the mission of the organization, to make it safe for refugees to find shelter wherever they can. And also the second mission that developed, in particular during the Bosnian War, was to give them actual shelter, physical shelter, and keep them alive physically. And that part of the protection mandate grew. And so how long were you at UNHCR? Just two years. Okay. And then you came back to Washington? I went to Princeton University where I was the Fred Schultz professor of practice for a year. And I've taught there now for 10 of the last 18 years. And my wife and I run two fellowships there as well. One called Scholars in the Nation Service Initiative, which is an effort to get top Princeton students into the federal government. So to really strengthen Princeton's commitment to serve, but to serve the federal government. And the other is the Richard Ullman Fellowship, which is a more entrepreneurial idea where usually an undergraduate and a graduate student will present a big ideas to us of, of how they'd like to spend the year. And we, well, the Ullman family and friends supports them in a full year, wherever that happens to be, whether it's in Nepal or in New York. It's great. Yeah. So you, you went to Princeton and then you also ended up here. Yeah. So then my professorship was for one year. It was a special Special deal. deal. Yeah. Very nice deal. So I came to Steve Morrison actually helped to recruit me here and so did John Hamry. And so I ended up having seven really wonderful years here. And I had no anticipation that it would be that long when I came here. What did you do here? I know what you did here, but tell us what you did here. So there was a program called the Post-Conflict Reconstruction Project. So PCR, I think it was called, Post-Conflict Reconstruction. Yeah. And so I ran that and co-directed it with Sheba Crocker originally and then with Karen Von Hippel as well. So we had— Both really distinguished partners. Yeah, we had wonderful partnerships and really good seven years here where I was able to— One of the things I love about being here— I suspect you do as well, is that I could imagine myself being the president's national security advisor, and I don't think he's getting hearing this about Pakistan. Nah. And we would spend a month in Pakistan uh, just interviewing literally and getting hundreds, smart hundreds on people. it. And then we'd come back with, this is what U.S. Here's policy... The, here's the three insights you need yeah. to understand. Yeah. Or we would also would do the analysis where we'd say, it looks like the United States is spending over $2 billion a year in Pakistan. And the consensus among the experts was that we were spending $750 million. So that was a lot more money, and that then generated quite a lot of interest on the Hill. But you also learn how you have to sell things in Washington. So just doing the good work is fine, but... Otherwise, it could sit on a shelf. 
poof. I mean, I was pretty sure that was happening to a lot of my early work. And by the time I got to the Pakistan study, for example, I knew that I had to probably have 50 meetings around Washington to really to make, make it, it stick. sink in. So that was all good stuff. I then went back into the government to be one of the U.S. ambassadors at the U.N. What did you do at the U.N.? So I was the ambassador for the Economic and Social Council. It's called ECOSOC. And I know I know what it is, but what is that? Yeah, so it's pretty much every it's most everything that's not the Security Council at the United Nations in New York. So it's UNICEF, it's UNICEF, UNDP, it could be human rights, UNHCR. So that turns out to be a fairly big universe, and some that, especially for the parts of the UN that are headquartered in New York, that became for me a real opportunity to see if we could help lead and manage their portfolio in a way that would be more aligned with what the United States thought was possible. You, you were there four years? In New no, York? no, I was just there two years. Two. Then I was recruited by the Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, to start a new bureau that would deal with conflict and stabilization operations. She felt that she did not have the tools to be able to deal quickly and responsibly and actually do something in places that were on the edge of conflict or trying to get out of it. And this is something that almost every Secretary of State had noticed because the State Department can spend quite a lot of time reporting, understanding, and trying to sort of frame policy and issues. But I think she felt that she wanted the ability to actually start addressing some of these things. And so it was very compatible with OTI and with other other lives. Yeah. When I was in the Bush administration, Secretary Powell set up something called SCRS or something like that. What is prompting different Secretary of State to want to deal with this? And what has been the problem? I get the sense that there are either institutional conflicts to this, and mm-hmm. and that's kind of one question. Sure. But there's a bigger question I want to get at, which is, why do we suck at this nation-building stuff? Yeah. If I can yeah. use that term, why do we suck at this stuff? Yeah, that's a technical I, term that I'm familiar te- with. That's it. a think tank oh. technical term. <laughs> but let me first do this SCRS and the bureau you stood up. There seems to be an AID State Department issue. Is it a Department of Defense State Department issue? Does the Hill have an issue? with the State Department doing it? Inertia is part of the problem, but the national security establishment has been pretty much consumed over the last 20, 30 years by a series of conflicts, whether it's, Fragile a, and a, conflict whether it's Afghanistan, States. Iraq, or Bosnia, Rwanda, whatever it happened to be. But when these crises breaks out like this, a lot of scurrying around takes place. But very few of the institutions are designed for these kinds of circumstances. You could argue that the U.S. military did its best work in Afghanistan at the very beginning of the Afghan war when we went in to kind of create order yeah, and chase, chase kill the, the bad guys yeah, and get the bad guys. And chase the, the Taliban sort of off the map. They know how to do that really well. So they did that really well. And ISIS decided that its caliphate needed hard real estate. Then the U.S. military, very effective because we know they're in that town and, and, we can flat, and, and we can flatten that town. But that doesn't make you that skilled in an awful lot of these other situations. And so former Secretary Rice featured expeditionary diplomacy. Former Secretary Powell knew that we needed this ability. And what they did is they created a coordinator's office. I worked for Doug Stafford, one of my bosses, said never, ever, ever. Did I say ever? I I, I meant never. take a job as a coordinator because you you have lots of responsibility and very little authority. And I felt 
to some extent, the SCRS got caught in that bind a bit that it was supposed to be pulling people together, but it depended on everybody's goodwill to come together. And it's not that people are necessarily mean. mean. It's just that they got 24-7 jobs, and they wonder what more— Why am I wasting my time with this? And who's going to, who are these people to coordinate me and whatnot? So I think the feeling was, and I still agree with it, there is a need to be able to pull together, but— make it much more actionable and have some people actually know what they're doing. Because if you've been working in the Middle East for the last 40 years, there had never really been a change of government until the Arab Spring. I mean, almost all of these places pretty much were whoever is in place. And then they die and, in their, and, die and, in office. And suddenly now you got street demonstrations. You have a lot of things happening, and they don't fit neatly into public diplomacy or traditional diplomacy or traditional military whatnot. So the thinking for CSO was doesn't make sense to have an agile. This is the this was your bureau. Yeah, which CSO. is conflict and stabilization operations. Doesn't it make sense to have a bureau that has that's building up the experience, has the analytical skills, knows these kinds of situations, and then can work with the geographic partners and the other the people who might know the place itself better, but don't necessarily know the circumstance. And so that started to become the notion. The, one of the things that I felt being at state, oftentimes there's quite a bit of ambiguity in the, in the U.S. government as to who's in charge. But when you get into a country, the U.S. ambassador is, is, in charge. is in charge. You can't even get into the country if you don't get country clearance. And I don't think a lot of American citizens understand that there's that much clarity. Now, there are four-star generals that sometimes find their way in there and can become a co-leadership model. But generally, the ambassador, so that's a degree of clarity that we don't have in Washington. The argument that I make in the book, and I really dedicate a whole chapter to this, is to say we have to have a one team, one leader, one strategy approach in Washington. And it probably makes sense for the State Department to be the convener. I'm not saying that the State Department should always have the leadership or should dominate the strategy. But it is the most logical convener because they have the same position in the country. So you wouldn't really want to have a totally different model in Washington. Now, people oftentimes think the NSC could do that, but the NSC is jumping from one crisis to another. And it so happens, a study that the PCR project here at CSIS did after I left said, there's one of these crises about every two and a half weeks. Okay, so the State Department... and so the State Department ADD. Can, yeah, and the State Department can be ADD mm-hmm. as well. I mean, there's nothing the State Department loves better than to circle the fire wagons to answer the alarm and drive the fire wagons over and then write a report about what's happening. But that has not been satisfactory to most secretaries of state. So I believe that that was one of the functions that we were starting. I mean, I only worked in the job for three years, but part of getting your roots in a very old, established institution. year old bureaucracy. Yeah. And, and they have a sign, by the way, on 23rd Street right outside. It's like a historic marker that says America's oldest bureaucracy. So they wear it with some pride. But that's not always good in these kinds of new or changed situations. And so tried to make the argument that we can do this as a team because if the deputy at AID, if the deputy secretary for political affairs at 
State Department and the Undersecretary of Political Affairs and the Undersecretary for Global get together and they make a recommendation to the Secretary of State for who should be in charge of this crisis. Then they pick the leader together, do that within a few days, and then use offices like CSO as a secretariat, as a standing staff. So when you pick somebody to run one of these crises, they're not immediately orphaned. One of the problems with special envoys, there are many problems with them, but one of the problems is they get a big sounding job, they get announced by the White House, and then they go over and they have and they run an orphanage at the State Department. They have no budget. Right. So they got no army. Right. Right? Right. So use CSO, use OTI and others to be the, the secretariat, the standing, the, the operations center at the State Department, and then obviously your counterparts at the fence. And so when you start in one of these crises, you start with a team. And so I spend a lot of time on that because otherwise, if it doesn't get practical, each time we're going to make it up. And what happens on a crisis, especially in a country that's not important to the United States, like the Central African Republic, the day before a crisis, there are two or three people could barely come together to talk about it. about it. But the day there's a crisis, 27 people are in the room and you wonder, who are these people and what are they doing and what are they going to bring to possibly solving this problem? So, you know, my theory of change in the world is we've got 100 developing countries, 70 of which are on their way to kind of making it. They're going to be middle income. They're going to be rich. And then yep. we got 30 or so fragile and conflict-affected states that we're kind of stuck with, yeah. if I can put it that way. And yeah. so I think a lot of the what you're describing kind of reflects these 30 or so intractably yeah. hard places. Yeah. So there's a lot to be frustrated about because these are really hard. Now, I don't have a flippant, simple answer for Syria. I don't have a flippant, simple answer for Haiti. When you look at some of the – I mean, you've been around a lot of these places a long time. Are there any things that make you optimistic? Sure. I mean, one of the things that makes me optimistic is there's a tremendous amount of local talent and native ingenuity. And generally, we don't call up on it anywhere near enough. So even, the, totally don't. even that story about the Bosnian TV and radio stations, there were people running Bosnian TV and radio stations. We didn't have to create have that. And we knew that the audience was there. We knew that the Bosnians were watching this stuff every day. So then it turned out after that first generation of hard-edged television advertising, we started to use a Zenitsa-based Bosnian comedy troupe who they came on and they did a whole series of spots that really made fun of the former apparatchiks who were still trying to run Bosnia and the stupid issues that they were using to divide the people. And Second City, Chicago yeah, yeah. type television spots, which we started running those, and those really captured the imagination of the local. So we didn't write their scripts. We didn't tell them what to do. But they wanted to make fun of the fact that if you wanted to drive around the country, you had to have a Croatian license plate, a Bosnian license plate, and a Serbian license plate. And so they did a spot where the John Candy-like guy and his little sidekick who took orders from him with the requisite ditzy blonde in a Yugo were planning a trip across Bosnia. And they're trying to figure out, well, we're going to go to that town. Oh, we'll need this license plate. And the little guy keeps running back to change the license plate. And finally, the little guy comes back because, you know, he's supposed to be the dumb guy. But, of course, he's got the idea. He said, hey, boss, well, how about if we put this thing on a rotisserie. And, <laughs> and so when people saw that spot, they realized, man, this is one stupid, it's really uh, stupid. argument. And then they had another one where they had a, a World Cup soccer game in the Sarajevo Olympic Stadium. And of course, there was almost nobody in the stand except for the big fat guy and the little guy and the blonde. And they were doing the wave and whatnot. But then the Bosnian soccer team came on and they presented their credentials. And the, the referee kept red carding them because it turned out that they were each presenting credentials for the part of the country they were from rather than being from Bosnia. Uh. 
the next series was getting people on the street to respond. What did you think of those advertisements? So that people were not only did they see the advertisements, but then you got the buzz afterwards. Well, you know, for very, very little money, we had everybody in the country talking about the stuff that was dividing and creating the conflict, which is, you know, not a bad deal. Rick, for the rest of my professional career, the rest of your professional career, these complicated, tough plays are going to be with us, if I can put it that I way. I think so. So let's agree, and sadly, that's going to be the case. So if you were at the State Department right now, if you were at AID, what would be the sorts of things you'd be proposing or pushing right now? And maybe some of the things that are in your book as well. Because my view is, whether this is a Republican government or right. a Democrat government, right. Republican Congress, Democrat Congress, we are going to be stuck with this. So For sure. we need a bipartisan consensus. And I don't I don't think this is super politically divisive. It's just a question. I think it, it lacks political will. And it's so unpopular because once in a while somebody gets killed and people throw up their hands and say, I don't want to be in this place I can't find it on a map. Right. They don't really welcome us and really... Well, I think, I mean, first off, there are going to be more of these places than we, than we realize. And so your description of that there are 20 or 30 of these countries is correct. But with the exception that there are new ones and bigger ones coming on the scene all the time. And so we've sort of run through like this. Venezuela. Yeah. And, and to some extent, you could say Pakistan or other. There are countries that could easily become violent in this in, fight in, between in 20, yeah. modernity and sort of the way things used to be and that people really wanted. And having started in Bosnia, I could say that there in the heart of Europe, I saw something that I had never imagined. It's the heart of darkness so stuff it's, in the heart of Europe. Yeah, yeah. So it can show up in a whole bunch of places. But I do think that the United States has to recognize that we have the ability to do much, much, much better. So if we lead, if we lead in the world that that matters. I think it really does matter. Now, the way we've led in these places hasn't been that effective. And I think one reason the American public is turned off to a lot of this work is that they're cheering for a losing team. If you look at 17 years in Afghanistan and in and out of Iraq a few times, it's not encouraging. People don't think that we know what we're doing. But what the book tries to make clear is that there actually is a lot of American ingenuity, that if you match it up with the native ingenuity of these places, that we can really be catalytic and we don't have to take them over. We shouldn't go into a place and say we're going to make it better than the South Bronx. We're not doing that good a job in the South Bronx. So get people started in a direction that they want to go in and help them get that momentum. And so that's those are really the big ideas of the book. You use the language catalyzing, not colonizing force. Right. What do you mean by that? Well, first off, I don't think anybody's a very good colonialist. Mm-hmm. But the United States definitely doesn't have it. We, we, we don't do colon- colony. We're supposed to be the anti-colonialists. I mean, that's yeah, you right. Know, we, we were the guys who escaped from it. That's, and, a, thi- that's a thing for us, yeah, right? That should have been a thing for us. So for us to get into a place, occupy it, tell the local people what to do, and tell them they're all going to be playing baseball next week is not a very easy formula. It's a lot easier to say, there's some talented people here. Maybe they're not major league talent yet, but we're going to give them an opportunity to do some local leadership, to take to be mayors, to be PTA heads, whatever it happens to be. And in doing that, they're going to learn a lot about how to get things done in their own community. And we can help them with that. We don't have to pay for the whole thing. We just have to help with framing the ideas and give them a little bit of juice. And generally, that will go a lot farther than if we had bought the whole franchise. There was a stabilization review recently. I guess we're not using the term nation building these days or whatever. There was some funniness about what what we called it, right? But what did you think about that? I think it's good. I think it's very good. I think it talks about how we can work 
This was the State Department, AID, and the Defense Department coming yeah. together and saying, what do we mean by this, and how can we work together better? They've done well on the definitions. They've figured out some good division of labor. There are some things that are very important uh, in this particular piece of work. At the end of the day, I still think we're going to have to come back at the end to make that idea stick. We're going to have to have the one team, one leader, one strategy approach. And if we don't have that, then it's going to be endless meetings at the NSC where they think they're trying to litigate the divisions between bureaucracies, and it's a hopeless mess. That was really the opening of CSO, and OTI has proven that it can work with everybody. And do we, do we currently have somebody at the State Department who has your role? There is a nominee, but I don't know if she started yet. But the office, I think, is providing good analysis and good support where needed. My worry about these smaller offices at the State Department is that they get minimized. They're given the small, impossible cases, and they're not given the prominent role. Every Secretary of State, whenever there's a crisis, should immediately convene not just the Geographic Bureau and not just maybe the biggest program in or there. The, the Undersecretary for Political Affairs or something. CSO should be in every one of those meetings because then they're on the hook for dealing with the potential conflict or the recovery after conflict. I believe in any bureaucracy, you want to have people who really recognize they not only have responsibility, but they're going to be given some authority, and then you're going to be calling on them and calling them out if they're not, if they're not doing it. All right, Rick. What a pleasure. Thanks for coming. The, the title of the book is called PeaceWorks, America's Unifying Role in a Turbulent World by Ambassador Rick Barton. Rick, what a pleasure. Thanks hey, for doing thank this. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure.